This is your morning wake-up call on Sports Country. Grab a cup of coffee and hang with us every weekday morning for the latest news, sports, and other things going on around the world and in your backyard. Now, here's your host, Gene Gums. Well, good morning, everybody. It is six minutes past nine o'clock here in Middletown, Connecticut, the 19th day of January, 2021. Welcome to a Tuesday morning wake up call here on Sports Country Radio. It is the last day of the presidency of the great Oompa Loompa, Donald Trump. Last full day in office, and God knows he'll probably go out with uh, scorched earth or something. But uh, uh, it's almost over, folks. Our long national nightmare is almost over uh, as Joe Biden will be inaugurated uh, tomorrow. So uh, looking forward to that, needless to say. Um, Before I get to what's uh, going on in the news this morning, I just want to take a moment. Uh, I've mentioned here on the air a few times about my friend John Clark, founder of WCNX Radio here in Middletown. He's kind of the impetus for why I even have this station. I started broadcasting high school basketball games with him about 15 years ago, and um, I kind of got the idea to to start doing uh, something on my own, and and he and Judy, his wife, uh, fully supported it. They've been great, uh, uh, great advocates for this radio station. I think they are... Uh, kind of, uh, uh, I guess proud is the right word. They're just happy that, uh, that I kind of took an idea they had and I took it in a different direction. And, uh, uh, so anyway, I've talked a little bit about the fact John is uh, fighting pancreatic cancer. He's losing his battle folks. He's, uh, probably does not have long to go, but, uh, I have started a fundraiser for uh, John and Judy. Uh, John does not have any life insurance and uh, Judy's facing a mountain of medical bills, et cetera. So I started a GoFundMe page and I uh, started it yesterday. We've already got, uh, close to a thousand dollars. I really appreciate uh, those of our listeners that have uh, chipped in. If you would like to donate, uh, you can find the link on our Facebook page. Uh, it's on Twitter. It's also on our website, sportscountry.net. There's a link to it there. If you would like to donate, I would uh, I would appreciate it. Anything, you know, every little bit helps. So, uh, uh, again, just want to take a minute to, uh, uh, to to give a little plug for that. All right, uh, let's get to what's going on in sports. Now, you know, some days you're not sure what you're going to talk about. I had a few things, you know, to go this morning. UConn played yesterday and the Bruins played last night. So I had a few things. And then sometimes you get given a gift. And I was given a gift. This this broke last night, late last night. So I did not find out about this until first thing this morning. And I, I opened up the, uh, the, the Associated Press this morning to find out that the new Mets general manager had been accused of sending inappropriate text messages to a woman while he was working for the Chicago Cubs. Uh, about 60 of them. And uh, one of them happened to be a picture of a, an erect penis. Now, he says it wasn't his, by the way. He said it was a stock photo. But I, not that that matters. But ESPN broke this yesterday. Come to find out it's a woman that was not even from the United States. She was from, she was from another country. 
here covering an American sports. It was so bad. It got to a point, and her, her English wasn't that great. She needed an interpreter to kind of help her with a text message to tell him to stop. And supposedly after that all happened, he tried to apologize. She wanted nothing to do with it, but it had gotten to a point where she left the country and actually left journalism. Well, so this happened back in 2016. So it was almost five years ago. And uh, ESPN broke the story, and the Mets got wind of it last night, late last night. Sandy Alderson released a statement uh, last night, basically said that he'd spoken with Jared about what took place, and Jared acknowledged his, his, as quote, serious error in judgment took responsibility for his conduct, uh, remorse, yada, yada, yada. He said, look, we're going to continue to follow, uh, to follow up as we review the facts. Well, so I was like, all right, well, now we got, we, we know what we're leading with this morning. About, uh, eight o'clock this morning, about a half an hour before I was heading to the studio to, uh, to get ready for the show. There is a tweet from Steve Cohen, the new owner of the New York Mets, that says, and I quote, we have terminated Jared Porter this morning. In my initial press conference, I spoke about the importance of integrity, and I meant it. There should be zero tolerance for this type of behavior. You know, and of course, with Steve Cohen, the reason that that came up was the whole thing with Carlos Beltran, who was... uh, uh, kind of let go by the Mets after they had named him coach, and he got caught up in the whole cheating scandal with uh, the Houston Astros, you know, and so uh, it was something that was important to Steve Cohen. And so at 7.55 this morning, he announced through Twitter that Jared Porter's been fired. He had just signed a four-year contract to be their uh, new general manager and work under Sandy Alderson, and now Jared Porter is out. Um, look, I, I don't, I'm not going to revel in this and, you know, it's, it's not, it's not anything that's funny. Um, it's sad on a lot of levels. I mean, I feel badly for the woman that was subjected to this. I mean, she didn't ask for that. No woman asked for that. And by the way, folks, you know, this is something that I see, see on Twitter all the, I don't actually see it, but you know, you, you, you hear about this all the time on Twitter that this guy's like on social media that just, you know, unsolicited send, you know, pictures of their, you know, flodunkus to women. What the hell is the matter with you? No, what the hell? Jeez. I don't get it. I don't get it. And whether that was really Jared Porter's or not, it doesn't, it's not even the point. What the hell are you thinking? As I said, it's sad all around. It's sad that he did what he did. Look, we've all made mistakes in our lives, but what one thing we have to recognize is there are consequences for stupid actions. Things that we do, they carry consequences. And people, there were some people on Twitter this morning after it was announced that Jared Porter got fired. They were like, "Oh, I don't know if this is right. It was something five years ago," and you know. This, there is a big difference between Jared Porter doing this five years ago when he was 36. He's 41 now. There's a big difference between Jared Porter doing this at 36 than a kid do, uh, saying or doing something stupid when he's 14 or 15 on social media and having it catch up to him five years later. There is a huge difference. You know, how many times have we seen, you know, some high school football or baseball player 
that has been uh, that has lost scholarships or has been, you know, ridiculed for some kind of racist tweet or some kind of uh, sexist tweet that they did uh, back when they were a kid in high school, and then it catches up to them in college. When you're 14 or 15, you're an idiot because you're a teenager. You're an idiot. You don't have that filter. You don't have that that sense of uh, right and wrong necessarily. All right, so to me, there is a big, big difference between what a high school kid does and what Jared Porter did. Jared Porter did it as an adult. He was 36 years old. He knew better. He knew better. So... Yeah, it was five years ago, but there are consequences. When you are an adult and you do that, that it, it follows you. And, you know, look, Steve Cohen had no choice. No choice. Paula Jerry just pointed out, I didn't realize this, that Jared Porter was uh, once married to Brian Burke's daughter. I did not know the former Hartford Whaler general manager. I assume that's the Brian Burke he's talking about. Uh, did not realize that. Uh, but... You know, so the people that want to stand up and say, well, it was five years ago. You shouldn't hold it against him. Look, should he go to jail for this? No. You know, look, it, let's it, because there are people that were on social media that wanted him hung by his you know what. You know, this isn't an executable offense, ladies and gentlemen, but it is something that if you're going to do that, you have to understand that you can't hold a position that is that uh, high profile. After doing that, you can't, you know, I'm not saying, and look, Jared Porter's probably, you know, a nice guy who made an error in judgment, but at the end of the day, he was an adult. You have to pay the price for stupidity. A 15 year old should not pay that price within reason. I mean, you know, a stupid tweet when it's uh, a lot of times what these kids do when they're 15 years old and things that they say, it's peer pressure. They're trying to blend in with their friends. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, you know, she, uh, she was, uh, you know, and that kind of stuff. There's a big difference between that and what happened to uh, Jared Porter as an adult. So uh, not exactly. And look, the Mets, <laughs> the Mets have been, uh, very active since Steve Cohen took over. And, you know, it has been all positive news. You know, it's, uh, you know, signing players and making trades. And, you know, things were looking rosy in New York. And all of a sudden, we have this. <laughs> welcome welcome to the t- 2000s. You know, the one thing that we know, if you have ever done anything stupid in the last 25 years, it's somebody is going to, it's going to be, somebody's going to find out. Somebody knows. And with the digital age, the way it is, it, it just, it's going to follow you. And in some cases, you know, you go, well, you know, it's not that important. In other cases, you just go, well, you know, it was dumb, but that's, that's the price of doing business. And, and for Jared Porter, you know, and, and if, you know, he can probably try to get a lawyer and sue all he wants, but he's got not a leg to stand on. Not one. So, you know, and it's a shame, and I'm not saying he should never work again, but, you know, you just, it is, you just can't, you, if you're the Mets, you just can't have something like that being at the forefront of your organization. You just can't. I mean, it's it's sad for everybody involved. 
So, uh, and speaking of firings, there was another one yesterday. Uh, the University of Tennessee fired their football coach, Jeremy uh, Jeremy Pruitt. Uh, matter of fact, they didn't fire just him. They fired nine other members of the program um, after an internal investigation found what uh, has been called uh, serious NCAA violations. The chancellor was the one that did it. The athletic director uh, who hired Pruitt uh, uh, is retiring. And if he wasn't going to retire, he's, he would probably be asked to retire. Um, but they, they fired two of Pruitt's assistants and seven members of the recruiting and support staff. Um, there doesn't say what the specific violations are, but this, I, I have to be honest with you. And look, I don't know Jeremy Pruitt from a hole in the wall. I know that they have struggled. They have a losing record. They went three and seven last year. Um, I know that, you know, his, his first year there, they were great. They won eight games. I think they were eight and five, went to a bowl game, beat Indiana, but they have struggled. You know what this smells like to me? And if you live in the state of Connecticut, you'll remember this. This smells a little to me like what the university of Connecticut did when they realized that Kevin Ollie wasn't the guy to lead their men's basketball team and they wanted to go in a different direction, but they were stuck on a contract that they did not want to have to pay. So they found a cause to fire Kevin Ollie because if you fire somebody for cause, you don't have to pay out the remainder of their contract. That is exactly what Tennessee has done. Uh, Pruitt has a $12.6 million buyout in his contract. And because he was terminated for cause, there is no buyout. So the University of Tennessee can find a new coach, and they save themselves $12.6 million because they did it this way. Now, I'm not saying there weren't some violations. With Kevin Ollie here in the state of Connecticut, there were some violations. Were they major violations? I don't know. I mean, it's that's still on. there's still ongoing litigation as far as that goes. You know, I understand what UConn wanted to do. They wanted to replace him. But frankly, UConn should have just uh, said, we made a mistake. And you buy him out and, you know, you pay him and you move on. But, you know, schools right now are strapped for money very, very badly. And so this is a way for Tennessee to find themselves a new coach and not have to pay $12.5 bucks. This is going to court. This is going to be tied up in court for a long, long time, the same way the Kevin Ollie situation with the University of Connecticut has been tied up. Again, uh, what Jeremy Pruitt was 16 and 19 in three seasons there. You know, and, and he, look, he plays in a bitch of a league. You know, good luck, you know, competing in that league, you know, in the SEC. You know, and it's a Tennessee team that, by the way, hasn't won a, 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 a division title in the SEC since 2007. You know, and maybe they expected Jeremy Pruitt to get him to the promised land, and he hasn't done it. And uh, they just said, well, we got to get better. But, again, this one's going to be tied up for a while. The Jared Porter one, not so much. Jared Porter can can try to sue, but – you know, with the evidence that, that they have, then there's nothing that, and he's admitted to what he did. Uh, he doesn't have a leg to stand on. 
it's unfortunate, but that that's the way it is. As far as Jeremy Pruitt goes, you know, if you're a Tennessee fan, strap in because it's going to be a little while. Uh, all right, let's get to uh, UConn yesterday. The UConn men played a game at 2.30 yesterday afternoon, and it started out great. It looked like – and look, everybody was worried about this game. Everybody's worried about every game UConn has to play for the next few weeks without James Booknight. James Booknight is a special talent. They are, you know, and they missed him yesterday. This is a game where, in the beginning, it looked like UConn was going to run away and hide. Uh, UConn had a 15 to two run early in the first half. They took a 21 to seven lead. They had a 14 point lead in the first half. But this St. John's team is relentless defensively. And they just continued to pressure UConn. They went on a 16-5 run of their own and uh, trailed by just three at the half after being down by 14. And they just continued to uh, pound away and pound away. And, you know, UConn did not trail in this game uh, until late. I think uh, with about, what, five minutes to go or something like that? And... Their offense went in the toilet, frankly. After that early run, they struggled to score points the rest of the game. You know, they would have brief flashes where, you know, UConn in the second half, they pushed the lead back up to eight. But then, you know, it was like somebody put a lid on the basket. They didn't have that go-to guy. R.J. Cole had 18. Tyrese Martin had 14. They got a great performance yesterday, I thought, from Adama Sanogo, the big kid in the middle, although I, he kind of disappeared. Danny Hurley at the end of the game said, well, St. John's went small, and we felt like uh, he couldn't guard anybody. So, you know, the problem with that is, and I get where he's coming from, except that the one thing that Sanogo can do is you're going to stop people from driving to the basket if you've got that big man in the middle. They went to Isaiah Whaley, and he played the center position. He's much more athletic, no question about it. But, you know, Sanogo is a much bigger presence in the middle and I think would have discouraged uh, the St. John's guards from driving as much had he been in the middle. But that's, you know, I don't get paid to coach. It's just, that was just an observation on my point. Uh, and, and look, you know, Danny Hurley prides this team on his defense. Well, they allowed St. John's to shoot 47% from three-point range yesterday, seven for 15. They shot 49% from the field. That's way too high of a percentage for Danny Hurley. You know, and at the same time, UConn struggled offensively. They only shot 40% from the field. And I'll tell you what, the thing that is going to bite this team in the you-know-what, and it did again yesterday a little bit, is their free throw shooting. 15 for 23 from the free throw line. They missed a couple of big free throws down the stretch. They had an opportunity um, after a jump ball. Martin had two free throws that would have given UConn the lead in the final minute, and he missed them both. You know, we where have we seen that? Remember the Creighton game? A game they ended up losing in overtime? So this is the second game where you can make a case that free throw shooting bit this team in the rear end. So that was a tough one. It was a tough one because even without book night, they looked like a team that can score a lot of points early in this game. 
And it's, you know, they say book night's going to be out a few more weeks. And, you know, except you, you watch him yesterday and he's out, you know, in pregame and he's, you know, he's shooting the basketball. And, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not a doctor. But, you know, if boy, if they can get him back uh, sooner rather than later, Danny Hurley will be a very happy man because it is obvious that right now, and I'm not saying that R.J. Cole or Tyrese Martin can't eventually be that guy that can be the go-to guy, but R.J. Cole yesterday, he tried, but he was 6 for 16. Tyrese Martin was 4 for 11. That And, you know, Sonogo, the big kid, he only played 17 minutes in this game. I, I'm sorry. And, again, I'm not getting paid to coach, but when this kid is in the game, He's played 17 minutes. He scores 12 points. He's 6 for 11 from the field. He's got four rebounds, a couple of assists. He's, you know, this is a kid, you know, he's stole, you know, he's got a, he had a steal. He had a block, you know, and he only played 17 minutes. I got to get him in the game more. Got to. You know, so uh, it's, uh, this was a tough one because this was a St. John's team that came in seven and seven. You know, and you can make the case that perhaps St. John's had an advantage because they've played so many more games and UConn has had so many stops and starts in this program. Every time they think they're going to get on some kind of a roll in playing games, somebody else, some other team has a, a, a COVID problem and they're shut down again. It's going to happen again. They were supposed to play Xavier on Wednesday. Now Xavier has some COVID issues, so the game has been postponed. So now UConn will be off again on Saturday, and the game that they have to sit on is this one, and guess who their next opponent is? You got it, Creighton, a team in the top 25, a team that UConn lost to in overtime the first time with James Booknight. Now they have to go off of a game like this and play Creighton in their next game when they could have had Xavier in the middle and give him a chance to kind of iron out uh, some of the issues from yesterday. So that's a tough one, no question about it. Uh, the UConn women will play today after yet another layoff. UConn's only, UConn women have only played seven games. Seven! Uh, so they will play Butler uh, today at 6.30. Uh, this game will be over in five minutes. And I'm not, and that's not hyperbole. <laughs> this game will be over quickly. Butler is one and eight, and one and seven. They have the worst offense in the nation. <laughs> they're only averaging 54 points a game, and they're shooting it at a 34 percent clip. And this is a UConn team that has shut down its opponents. Uh, its last three opponents have scored fewer than 52 points. Only Seton Hall has cracked the 60-point threshold and that against UConn, and that was in the second game of the year. So, good luck, Butler. You can turn this game on at 6.30, turn it off at 6.45, and the, and the, the final score will not be in doubt. It's 28 minutes past the hour. We've got to take a break. We're back in a minute. You're listening to the Wake Up Call on Sports Country. It's 31 minutes past the hour. Welcome back to the wake-up call here on a Tuesday morning. Um, there were some comments made yesterday. Uh, Kim Mulkey, the head coach from uh, Baylor, the women's basketball coach, uh, was very uh, pointed about her comments uh, this weekend uh, after they beat 
uh, Iowa State in a game, or excuse me, after they lost to Iowa State in a game, seventy-five to seventy-one, and uh, she, I want to, I want to start out by saying, a, she's right. B, I, you know, unfortunately, when she made these comments, they came off kind of as, to me, sour grapes. Uh, because they lost the game. If they had won the game, I don't think she would have said this. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's the cynic in me. But uh, uh, she was uh, asked about, uh, you know, the way this season was going and, and, and how her team was handling it and did the loss have anything to do with the COVID restrictions and the way the schedule is designed this year, yada, yada, yada. And she said uh, – she said the season will continue on. She said it's called the almighty dollar. She said the NCAA has to have the almighty dollar from the men's tournament. The almighty dollar is more important than the health and welfare of me, the players, or anybody else. And she went on to say one conference does this, one conference does that. The CDC says this. She said everybody's confused. I'm confused. I'm uncomfortable coaching. I understand COVID is real. I've had it. Come talk to me sometime. But I don't know. All the calls and procedures, that's going to go and make it unusual and comfortable for every program. We're no different at Baylor. Well, first of all, as I said, she's right. This is about the almighty dollar. We saw that in college football. You know, the Big Ten and the Pac-12 and, you know, and other conferences are all like, yeah, we're going to do the right thing. We're going to not play football this year. And then somebody said, yeah, but, you know, you're probably going to lose $10, $15 million a school by not, oh, wait a minute, really? Oh, well, you know what? Maybe on second thought, we should play football. So there is never, you know, there was never a doubt this is all about money. And Gino Ariema talked about it. in. The, there was a story in the Hartford Current this morning. Uh, Alexa, Alexa Filippo had a, a story in there this morning, and he basically said, yeah, yeah, she said the crux of what uh, Kim Mulkey said is true. And he said, look, he said, without the NCAA tournament, there's a lot of things in the NCAA that don't happen. There's a lot of championships. He said mainly all of them that wouldn't be held if it weren't for the men's basketball tournament. Folks, I've talked about this before. I worked in college athletics for 25 years. I have seen how it works. There is no doubt that men's basketball and football drive the bus in college athletics. Perfect example for you. Sacred Heart University in Fairfield, Connecticut, where I worked for 10 years. Love the place. The men's basketball team was instructed. This wasn't a request. The athletic director, or actually it was the vice president, who was in charge of athletics and the athletic director went to the men's basketball coach who at the time was Dave bike, great friend of mine and said, okay, Dave, when you make your schedule, you have to to schedule some guarantee games. These are games where you go and get paid to go get the crap beat out of you by some, some upper tier school, but they would go to Dave and say, okay, Dave, we need you to go play X number of guarantee games that are going to bring in X number of dollars. One year, I think it was $250,000. So we had to go out and get our brains beat in four or five times a season to bring in a quarter of a million dollars because that $250,000 that that the basketball team brought in would fund 
the program for other sports. It would fund the fencing team. It would fund, uh, you know, the equestrian team. It would fund the field hockey team. It would fund the men's soccer team. It would fund several sports. So it it alleviated uh, the, the tightness of the budget. Sacred Heart was trying to run 32 sports at a small Division One school, so men's basketball was huge in helping keep that program above water. Without the, that $250,000, there were probably some sports that would cease to exist at that school. And that is the way it works at every school. What the football team at Michigan brings in funds almost every other sport in the athletic department. And that is not, folks, hyperbole. That is fact. You know, if the football team at Michigan or Ohio State or Alabama or whatever, you know, wins their conference championship, goes to a bowl game, wins the national championship, the bowl money and the TV revenue from those sports fund the rest of the athletic department. That is why football coaches make five, six, seven, eight, nine million dollars a year. That's why men's basketball coaches can make multiple million dollars a year because those sports fund the rest of the athletic department. It is that simple. So yes, Kim Mulkey's right. It is about the almighty dollar. Should it be? Well, in a perfect world, of course not. But at the same time, as Gino points out, if it weren't for the men's basketball tournament, there's a lot of national championships in other sports that would not exist. He said, it's not like the women's tournament is going to go out there and make enough money to pay for anything. He said, we're going to make some money. He said, but not enough to survive. And even Gino said, look, when this was, the whole thing was going, he knew they had to have a season. He just didn't know how it needed to work. He thought they shouldn't play until February 1st. And you know what? He was probably right. If you look at what's going on in this country, games are being canceled at ridiculous rates, not just in college, but in the NBA. Maybe if they had waited till February 1st, the, the vaccination program had been underway, maybe it would have been better. You know, who knows? But it is about the money. And yeah, I think there was a rush to try to get this done, to try to get this season started. And that is why you have seen the UConn men's and women's basketball teams being able to only play, you know, a handful of games where a team, you know, when you have a team like St. John's that comes in yesterday against UConn and has played twice as many games, there's a definite competitive advantage to St. John's. Regardless of whether James Booknight was playing for UConn or not, St. John's came into that game yesterday with an advantage simply because they had played so many more games. And as someone who was a basketball coach at both the high school and college levels, I'm telling you right now, if I'm playing a game and I've played two games this season and the team I'm playing has played 10, I'm in trouble. I don't care how much talent I have because we haven't had a chance to work out all the kinks. So, uh, you know, anyway, so she's right. It is about the money. But at the end of the day, you know, I, I don't know what the answer is because if you don't continue to bring in the money, then programs are going to cease to exist. So what's the right thing to do? And I, I think that that's what all 
colleges, athletic directors, university presidents, et cetera, et cetera, have been fighting. That's why we've been fighting that at the high school level here in the state of Connecticut. It's why today is the first day for practices for winter teams. Uh, this is the first day they can practice, and the first day for games is not going to be till February 8th. It'll be a 12-game season that will last about six weeks. Teams can play no more than two games a week. And I think that's reasonable. I think that 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 the the state has done the right thing. Now, would I have minded if they had completely canceled the season? No, but I think that they have done the best job that they can, trying to give the kids some kind of experience and still try to be safe. I'm still a little bit nervous because we're in the middle of this big wave, you know. And but you know, it's worth a shot. Now, if if a week into it we fi- suddenly find that there's spikes in cases, they will shut it down in a heartbeat. I hope that doesn't happen. But I think that they've done a good job at least, you know, trying to postpone this as long as they can. Uh, by the way, on that note, um, um, I had a uh, an exchange with uh, Matt Martirelli, the athletic director at Xavier High School here in Middletown, and uh, this station is going to be broadcasting basketball games. I am very excited about that. Um, Matt said he didn't think it would be an issue with uh, Sports Country coming in and uh, doing their home games. So if they have a half a dozen home games this year, we'll be there doing them. You know, it, it'll be weird uh, broadcasting the game wearing a mask, but uh, I'm I am jonesing to broadcast a game. We haven't broadcast a game now since in over a year. I think I forgot how. Uh, so we will have Xavier High School. We're hoping to have Cromwell High as well. I have reached out to Kelly Maher, the athletic director there, and uh, we'll see. We'll see. So we w- we're hoping to be bringing you some. Uh, uh, lots of basketball starting on uh, February 8th when they can first start playing. But uh, stay tuned. We'll we'll have the schedule on the website when we know. Um, other news, the top 25 came out. And, of course, uh, uh, Gonzaga and Baylor remain 1-2. Villanova still the number three. UConn moved up to number 23 in this week's poll, but they will be out of it uh, unless uh, unless they beat Creighton who is number 11 in the country right now. Unless they beat Creighton on Saturday, UConn will be out of the top 25 next week uh, after that loss to St. John's. But uh, uh, Gonzaga got 62 of the 64 first-place votes, and uh, Villanova is uh, third. Iowa moves up to number four. They leapfrog Texas, who drops down uh, a spot. So uh, that is that as far as that goes. And in, in the women, of course, after Baylor uh, loses again, uh, we saw Stanford lose this week. Uh, Stanford drops from number one in the country to number five. Louisville, number one in the top 25 poll for the first time in school history. They are 12-0. and They got 20 of the 29 first-place votes. Uh, North Carolina State got five. UConn got one. South Carolina got a couple. And Stanford still got one. Uh, so it's Louisville, North Carolina State, UConn, South Carolina, Stanford, your top five. Um, and then it's UCLA, Maryland, Texas A&M, Baylor, and then Arizona gets into the top 10, uh, jumping up one spot as Oregon uh, dropped out of the top 10 down to number 13. So that is where we're at as far as the top 25 goes. We've got some baseball news to talk about uh, other than guys uh, sending pictures of penises to to female reporters. This is, this is actual on-field stuff, so we'll talk about that when we come back. You're listening to the Wake Up Call on Sports Country. 
Welcome back to the Wake Up Call. It's 45 minutes past the hour here on a Tuesday morning as uh, we get into our last lap. By the way, we're going to continue the one-hour morning shows probably through the middle of March. Uh, We're going to get back to our two-hour shows uh, for sure uh, in April. Uh, We are just uh, uh, waiting to uh, get everything kind of back to normal, everybody playing on a regular schedule. And uh, once baseball's underway, we'll have lots more to talk about. So we will uh, get back to our two-hour shows probably starting uh, in middle of March to, uh, uh, to, the, to the first part of April. Uh, so speaking of baseball, John Lester uh, signed or, or has reached a deal pending a physical anyway with the Washington Nationals. Uh, Lester is going to be 37 years old. Uh, He is a guy that has one of the things you have to love about John Lester, and he didn't have a great year last year, and, you know, I don't want to hear about last year. Um, You know, there's no question that his numbers have declined over the years, but he's 37 years old. You know, last year he pitched to an ERA of, you know, well over five, but it it was last year. It was 60 games. It was that weird you know, stop, start, spring training stuff. He went 3-3, three and three, uh, had an ERA of 5.1, but he made 12 starts. You know, he took the ball every fifth day. That's one thing he has been reliable of. You know, this is a guy that is uh, had 200 inning seasons eight years in a row. Now, nobody's allowed to pitch 200 innings anymore, I don't think, but uh, – uh, but he's thrown 170 in each of the last three full years, not counting last year. I mean, so this is a guy who has been reliable. Uh, he is going to, you know, be slotted right into that uh, number four slot in the Washington rotation. Look, this is going to be a good Washington team. I think they have made some some good signings. Getting Josh Bell in that trade with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Um, I think Kyle Schwarber, I think, is going to have a resurgence in Washington. He's been reunited with Dave Martinez, a guy that he had a very close relationship with in Chicago who helped him make that transition from catcher to playing the outfield. Uh, And, of course, Lester knows Dave Martinez very well. I think this is still going to be a very dangerous Washington Nationals team. Now, obviously, you know, that division is a bitch. I mean, think about it. You've got the Atlanta Braves with all those young kids. Uh, you've got look what the Mets are doing. Uh, you can't count the Phillies out. You know, if they can get the pitching situation figured out, and they do actually re-sign J.T. Romuto, there are still a lot of weapons in Philadelphia. That division, you know, and that young Miami Marlins team. That team, that division is going to be a dogfight. That's going to be a lot of fun to watch. And speaking of divisions that are going to be a dogfight, the San Diego Padres, man, you know, from this uh, supposed small market team, they just continue uh, to make moves. They made another one yesterday. uh, And uh, this, you know, is going to be uh, a lot of people are going to say, who's Joe Musgrove? Well, Joe Musgrove uh, was the best pitcher on the Pittsburgh Pirates team. And uh, he has been traded to the San Diego Padres from Pittsburgh uh, as, pa- as part of a uh, three-team deal. Um, and uh, the New York Mets were involved in it as well. But now, Musgrove, this is a guy that was their opening day starter in 2020. Now, he was 1-5, but it's the Pittsburgh Pirates. They can't beat anybody. He pitched to a 3.86 ERA. He struck out 55 guys in 39 innings. 
39 two-thirds innings. Uh, he's 28 years old, and uh, he is under team control now for two years. They're going to have him for this year and next year. And he's only making $4.5 million. This is a guy that has a World Series ring that he got with Houston in 2017. We won't talk about maybe why they got that, but still. Uh, but then he was sent to the Pirates in the trade that sent Garrett Cole to the Astros. <clears throat> he actually has a World Series win. He was the winning pitcher in Game 5 against the Dodgers that year. Um, but now you look at that Padre rotation. Look, they've added you, Darvish, right? They've added Blake Snell. Uh, they have Denilson Lamette. Now, Mike Clevenger is out for the year with Tommy John surgery, but this team is loaded, and they have Fernando Tatis. They have Manny Machado. This team is going to be a handful. Now, will they have enough to challenge the Dodgers? I think they might. I think they might, and they are not being shy about making moves. By the way, they also signed – uh, this kid that uh, Kim Hae-sung out of South Korea, uh, big power hitter. And uh, this is going to be an interesting, interesting team to watch. Uh, and my old buddy uh, Don Orsillo, I think, is going to have a lot of fun calling Padre games, although Don has fun with everything he does. Uh, part of the deal uh, sent Joey Lucchese to the New York Mets. Uh, so Lucchese will uh, compete for a roster spot uh, he will probably be battling it out with, uh, you know, whether I don't know what the Mets are going to do uh, with uh, Steven Matz and Seth Lugo. My guess is Lugo goes back to the bullpen, but maybe he is going to compete with Steven Matz for the number five spot in that rotation. They've already got Jacob DeGrom, Carlos Carrasco, Marcus Stroman, and uh, David Peterson. And they Noah Syndergaard is going to come back probably in the middle of the season uh, from his Tommy John surgery. So the Mets rotation is going to be loaded as well. They're going to have a lot of options, and they might have some – look, if they need – they find they've uh, they've got some spots, you know, that will also give them some, uh, some trade chips. So that leaves, you know, all this stuff going on around Major League Baseball, and Red Sox fans are going, hey, hey, fellas, are we going to do anything? And I know that the Red Sox signed Martin Perez, and – I know that they signed. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of the the uh, the pitcher's name that they signed, uh, Matt Andres. You know, and uh, uh, but the Red Sox really, you know, they haven't done anything. They have a second base situation they need to address. Nothing has happened there. Right now, they still don't know what's going to happen with the outfield. Jackie Bradley Jr. is still sitting out there. I still think there's a decent chance that he comes back to Boston. But we don't. But but the Red Sox, look, they've spent I think ten million dollars on three players in this offseason. That's it. They probably have twenty-five to thirty million dollars that they could spend to address the holes in this team and still stay stay well under that hundred and ninety million dollar salary cap. So. Red Sox fans are going, what are we doing? Now, as Pete Abraham has pointed out in the Boston Globe, obviously the longer the Red Sox wait, the lower the numbers are going to come down, you know, because as guys uh, don't get signed, you know, the num the, the dollar fit, the dollars are going to go away. So maybe Bloom's waiting to be – maybe he's trying to be a bargain shopper. 
Yeah, I don't know. But please, God, do something. And I'm really concerned about this Red Sox rotation. You know, they're talking about they're going to be very, very cautious with Chris Sale. Uh, Chris Sale said he's coming back as soon as possible. The Red Sox are going to want to hold him back to make sure that he is okay because, folks, after this year, they still have, I think, through 2025 with Chris Sale. They gotta, if he blows that elbow out again, he's done, and the Red Sox have lost all that money on that contract extension they signed him to. So they have to be careful and make sure that he is not going to jeopardize the rest of his career. But there are players out there that the Red Sox that look, you got to do something. Look, as far as pitching goes, they're not signing Trevor Bauer. We know that's out. But look, uh, there's still a lot of guys out there. Uh, guys like Jake Odorizzi, who they've been tied to. J.A. Happ's still out there, although I'm not a huge fan of his. James Paxton's out there. Uh, Rick Porcello could be a cheap, uh, a cheap get. Now, you know, is he going to set the world on fire? No, but this is a guy that won a Cy Young Award a few years ago. Masahiro Tanaka is still out there. You know, there are still pieces out there for that rotation. And yet here we sit on January 19th. Spring training opens in a month, and the Red Sox still don't seem to have a direction. Uh, one direction they did make, they traded C.J. Chatham yesterday to the Phillies. Uh, a kid who was a second-round pick who's hit pretty well in the minors. He hit 298 in the minors but uh, has never really shown any pop. This is a guy that's – he's you know who he is? He is a uh, he's a he's maybe a Brock Holt type of player. He can play all over the place. So they traded him to the Phillies for a player to be named later. They needed to open up. He had a spot in the 40-man roster, and they needed to open up one uh, to get Martin Perez in there. So Chatham gets shipped off uh, to the Phillies. A couple other quick notes. Uh, Bruins lose yesterday. Tough game. Uh, Semyon uh, uh, Varlamov, 27 saves, and the Bruins lose to the New York Islanders 1-0 in their home opener on Monday. Uh, Jean-Gabriel Pajot uh, with the only goal of the game with 4.09 remaining, and he looked like a baseball player. He literally swung at the ball uh, with his hockey stick like it was a baseball bat and knocked it past Tuka Rask for the only goal of the game with four minutes to go. Uh, Bruins defense, look – in the first few games this season has looked really good. No question. I'm, you know, they got to get that offense going. I'm a little bit concerned about that, but uh, if, if people that were worried about the blue line with the departure of Krug and the departure of Zeno Chara, I think you can relax a little bit. I think, uh, I think the defense is going to be just fine, uh, but they need uh, uh, the offense uh, to pick it up a little bit. So anyway, that is going to do it for us here this morning. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition of the wake up call. We'll leave you this morning with some music from one of my favorite people in the world. Uh, just somebody you see her and you can't help but smile. It's Dolly Parton's 75th birthday today. So in honor of uh, Dolly's birthday, we'll leave you this morning with uh, one of her uh, famous songs, Jolene. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to The Wake Up Call on Sports Country.